Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. One scholar, his name is John Walton. He teaches at, at Wheaton College. Um, pretty conservative, but he has some thoughtful remarks with regard to what the Bible actually is. I'd like to encourage us with that as we begin this evening. He says, we recognize that although the Bible is written for us, it is not written to us. And I don't know what sort of background you have with the Bible. I don't know what sort of background you have with the church. Perhaps you've been in a, in a context where you have heard that the, the Bible is God's love letter to you. And this Old Testament scholar is going to push back on that saying, the Bible is written for us. There are things that we can glean from it. There's the beautiful story of redemption, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God for our life and our salvation. There's important things in the Bible. It's written for us, but the Bible is not necessarily written to us, he says. Instead, in its context, it is not communicated in our language. It is not addressed to our culture. It does not anticipate the questions about the world and its operations that stem from our modern situations and issues. The Bible is written for us, but not to us. And this is why at times when you flip open your Bible and you struggle to understand what is going on, you might be failing to remember that this story is something that has been written long ago in a language and idiom of an ancient people that might not necessarily communicate with us. God, in a sense, is accommodating himself throughout the pages of scripture to communicate with people in a way that they will understand. God is meeting his audience where they are at in that specific moment and how the stories are being communicated and how his law is being communicated and how the gospel is being communicated in the very incarnation of his son, fancy word, the very uh, God taking on flesh, coming into the world. He does not come as an abstract historical idea. He comes into a first century Jewish context and culture and is inundated with that moment in time and place and communicates to his people in light of that. God is meeting his audience where they are. God is communicating in their contextually bound language and idiom or put a bit more provocatively because you seem like a people that like some provocative speaking. <laughs> the authors are communicating to their audience in contextually bound language an idiom. They're speaking things that make sense to the people that they are writing to or writing 
about. They are not necessarily communicating to us directly some 3,000 years in the future. That would have made zero sense. And if this is all true, it means that we therefore have to do some work in unpacking what the scripture is actually saying in its culture before we can apply it correctly to our culture. Now understand, again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look back to what I said five minutes or so ago. God can speak to you, God does speak to you, God will speak to you at, at all sorts of levels when you just open up the word of God in obedience and in expectation that the spirit will meet you and guide you and bring about illumination. However, I have yet to know the spirit to bring illumination and guidance to the point of when you're done, you know a lot about history and context and ancient literature. I've never met the person who just read their Bible and, and the next day said, the spirit illumined me to know Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. I, that doesn't necessarily happen. And there's some nuances in that work that allow us to see things that we might not see on our own. It means that if God is accommodating himself, if God is speaking in the language and idiom of the time, that we might have to do some work to recapture what God is saying and then apply it to ourselves. One of the very simplest examples to communicate this is in the creation story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And for 21st century American readers, as we approach those words, we have all sorts of baggage, all sorts of previous discussions, all sorts of ideas and questions about science and whatever that we import back onto the text, usually because we haven't done the hard lifting of trying to get back into that ancient culture to see what God is communicating to his people. Instead, we have a whole litmus test of questions and things that we want to put back into the text to find exactly what it is that God is saying to our questions in our context, not to an ancient people. Can I get an amen? amen? Okay, as long as you're with me. When we think about science now in the 21st century American context, we might have a picture of the world that looks like this. I typed in something like the biggest and best map of the universe, and this is what I got from NASA. This is something about, I'm not a scientist, okay? So I'm gonna butcher this. You can look it up for yourself. It's something about all of the light throughout the universe, and it dates back something crazy, like 360,000 years, and we, and we see all of this there. I was actually gonna text Jory. I was like, Jory, give me, give me a picture that would communicate the vastness of the universe to this audience. I didn't do that, and that's why you got this. It's not very, not very good. It doesn't really tell a good story, but it could. Jory, just on your Facebook sometime in the next day, just throw something up, and we'll all say, great, thank you. But when we think about scientific questions, we have this in the background. We have telescopes and satellites and science. We have the enlightenment. We have reason and rationality. We have all sorts of crazy knowledge that was not known way back then. So for God to unpack creation in a way that we would understand back then to ancient Israelites, it doesn't make sense. God is accommodating himself to the people at that moment in a way that they would understand. Now, with this in mind, again, Pete ends in a different book, would say the only way to bring Genesis into our world is first to understand the world of Genesis and what this book is trying to say in its world. If we're gonna understand Genesis 1 or Genesis 1 through 3 or Genesis 1 through 11 or Genesis 1 through 50, 
We have to understand what Genesis is saying in its context in order for it to make sense to us without us just importing all the stuff that we want it to say. Now, you might be sitting in your seats thinking, I thought this was a series on John. It is, okay? We're gonna do some work and then we're gonna get there. Big drum roll, big climax. It's gonna be good, trust me. And if it's not, you can throw stuff at me. So anyway, the only way to bring Genesis into our world is first to understand the world of Genesis and what this book is trying to say in its world. Now, for us to understand this, we have to understand the importance of the 19th century. Because in the 19th century, a lot of things were happening. There's a lot of moving parts that are changing how people are understanding the Bible and understanding the story of God. Things like Charles Darwin is showing up and at least pushing back on some of the scientific conclusions of the day. Pushing back on some of those things, we also have a, a movement, a revolution, if you will, in historic, biblical, critical studies. Woo! That, doesn't that just sound fun? We have a revolution in how people are approaching the Bible. They're not approaching it by just taking it for what it's saying. They're actually going underneath of it and they're starting to get back into its context and they're starting to ask big questions. This was actually a moment in the 19th century when people started to sort of turn away and say, nah, I don't know about somebody walking on the water. Nah, I don't know about ax heads floating. That doesn't seem to go with some of the scientific revolution that we know about now when people began to have a skeptical eye in approaching the text and asking big questions about it, such as who wrote it? Why did they write it? Who are they writing to? What can we know about these things? Reason and rationality and the enlightenment was completely transforming science and also was trickling down into biblical studies. But the most important thing in the 19th century, it's not Darwin, it's not historical, critical, biblical scholarship. It's all these old dudes that were out in the desert with a shovel digging around and finding stuff. In fact, in the 19th century, people began to unearth old tablets that had writing on them. I read one scholar that said they found one million cuneiform tablets with Akkadian writing on there. And you say, whoo, Akkadian? I know. It's fascinating, isn't it? Akkadian is like the older cousin to Hebrew. Understanding Akkadian helps us to understand Hebrew. These are all called the Semitic languages, and they all have shared um, qualities between them. So if you can understand Akkadian, you can understand some Hebrew stuff. But what was really important about this find, they began to unearth tablets and once they cracked the code and began to understand what they said, what they found was Bible-type stuff. They found stories that when they read them, they said, oh, I've heard that before. It sounds a lot like our creation story. Or, I've heard that before. It sounds a lot like Noah and the flood. Oh, I've heard that one before, but some details are, are really, they're different. The, the text over my shoulder here, this is called Enuma Elish, which comes from the first lines of the poem, When on High. It is the Babylonian creation account. Now remember, Israel spent a good amount of time in Babylon during the exile. Israel was probably predisposed to some of these stories, but what's interesting about these texts, which have been dated to about the 8th century or so, B.C., 
they actually seem to hold on to a myth, I'm going to use that word, that, that goes well beyond into the distant past, maybe even predating Genesis. Do you see the importance there? These stories that seem to be forerunners to the Bible. And this created all sorts of controversy with, within, within the scholarship. In fact, some people began to talk about Bibel und Babel, which means the Bible and Babylon, and how these two things go together. And some scholars began to say, the Bible is not unique at all. In fact, the Bible is a complete ripoff of all this Babylonian literature. It was called Pan-Babylonianism. It, it's about everything that is, has been influenced by Babylon is in the Bible. Now, some people went way too far with this. I don't think that that has any merit whatsoever, but it does inform how we read the Bible because when we see Genesis 1 and when we compare it to Enuma Elish, there's all sorts of really cool and exciting similarities, such as matter exists independently in both of these stories. In other words, matter is not created in Genesis. And you're sitting there and you say, well, what about creation ex nihilo, Mr. James? Is that what you're saying? I thought that God spoke things that weren't there and spoke them into existence. Not in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, it tells a different story. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, now the earth was formless and void. In the Hebrew, the words there are tohu vavohu. Ooh, that's fun, isn't it? These are always negative terms, and it means something like that it was wild and waste. It was something where God was shaping things that were already there. Remember, in the story, he's not creating the waters from above and the waters from below. No, he's separating the waters from above and the waters from below. He's gathering the land to one spot, and he's moving the seas to a different spot. He's ordering the day and the night let there be light during this time and let that go away and it will become the night. So God is shaping things that are already in existence in these stories, much like in the Babylonian creation accounts. Darkness is preceding creation. It talks about darkness being prior to the creative activity in Genesis chapter one. I want to pull this up just so I don't butcher it for you. I'm going to pull up the common English Bible because I think it reads pretty well. It doesn't change anything that we're talking about here, but I enjoy how it sounds. It says, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without shape or form. That's the tohu vavohu um, clause there. The earth was without shape or form. It was dark over the deep sea, the great mythical to home. Stay with me here because I am going somewhere with this. It was dark over the deep sea and God's wind or God's breath or God's spirit was hovering over the waters. Darkness is preceding the creative activities. It just is in both of these stories. And we have within these stories this, um, the to home in Genesis chapter one, the great deep. This was symbolic of chaos. This was symbolic of the waters that could not be tamed in other creation accounts. For example, in the, in the Enuma Elish, we have Tiamat, who is the goddess 
of, the, of, of storm waters or the goddess of chaos or the goddess of bitter waters, perhaps. It talks about in their story, there was this moment when all the waters were intermingling, but in the very beginning, it was separated Apsu, who was the god of good water, and Tiamat, who was the god of not good water. And then when they intermingled, they created little gods in the Babylonian story. Come on, really? Nothing? Okay. I've just ticked you off up to this point. My bad. So we have Tiamat here, which has resonances in the Hebrew text of this great deep, this thing to be feared, this thing to be afraid of because you can't control it. You can't, you can't figure it out. In the Babylonian story, Tiamat was this God who was calling for the death of all these other gods. She was ticked a lot of, in a lot of times, and we'll see what happens with her. Light was existing before the sun and the moon and the stars, which has been a logical difficulty with people as they're approaching Genesis chapter one. And in the Enuma Elish, we have Marduk, this other God who was going after his great, 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 great grandmother, Tiamat, I believe, and going to kill her. And what he ends up doing with Tiamat is cutting her in half. And with one half of her body, he spreads her out and separates the waters from above from the waters from below. And it sounds an awful lot like Genesis because we have God who is separating the waters above and the waters below. And the way that God does that is he builds a rakia, say rakia. It's an expanse. It's something that has been hammered out almost. And it's a symbolic of a, a hard shell. It's like a roof up there. And beyond that roof is the waters from above that are separated from the waters below which is why in Genesis chapter six, when it talks about the flood, it says that God opens up the floodgates. Literally, he opens the window in the dome and lets the waters from above the chaos into the world as a form of judgment. This is an ancient people understanding what is going on in their world in ways that made sense to them. We also have in Enuma Elish the sequence of days as similar to what's happening in Genesis chapter one. And for many people, all of these similarities, it was a problem because they began to doubt, well, maybe this Bible isn't really worth much. Maybe it's just an artifact of history. It has nothing to do with who we are or where we are going. And for many of you, it's not just was a problem. For many of you, it might be it is a problem. Now, you're in a safe space tonight, because if any of this is intriguing to you, I will put you on my calendar. I will lock out entire days for us to talk about ancient Near Eastern history and what's going on in this passage because I love it. Not just because it's interesting, because I think it's important and because it leads us somewhere. If it only takes this to get you to understand that God communicates to his people in a way that they will understand, then we have succeeded because friends, God still communicates to us in ways that we understand. It's not in this holy thou type language that doesn't make any sense to us. It's, I hate this word, I'm gonna say it. It's intimate, it's personal. It makes sense in our context. This is a problem for many people because we don't know what to do with the similarities between Genesis and these other stories. For me, this is super cool and meaningful because God is communicating to these people in their contextually bound language and idiom because these creation myths, they're in the air. They're in the water, if you will. So when God tells this story, to his people, 
It's not out of a vacuum. It's not completely new and separate. It's like the other creation stories, but when you understand the divine accommodation that is happening, when you see the similarities in these stories, you also see the differences. In Enuma Elish, Marduk rips Tiamat. He fillets her into half and makes the heavens and the earth. But in Genesis, God creates alone. And more than that, God creates in peace. There is no battle in Genesis 1. There is a battle in Psalm 74 and Isaiah 51, and it's real cool. Remember last week, we, I, I thought to myself, don't talk about this, but I'm going to anyway. Um, last week when we looked about in the beginning how God pierced Rahab through, it's using some more of this, um, these understood ideas that God is creating by taming the chaos and in Isaiah, at least, the way that he does this is by piercing the sea monster through. But here in Genesis 1, Gabe, God creates alone. God creates in peace. God orders the wasteland. He's moving. He's shaping. He's directing. These waters go here. This land goes there. This rakia goes here. This keeps the waters up there and the waters down here. These animals go there. These people go here and have dominion over these, over these things. God is ordering the wasteland. God is ruling over the chaos, which for an ancient people was their MO of these creation stories. God's spirit, in fact, is hovering over the Tahom, the deep, the mythical, scary waters. God says, and I've done this before and I'm going to do it again. You've got nothing on me. You stay here. I stay here. You go where I tell you to go. Chaos does not reign in my house. And this is in the very beginning of the story. God is saying, in light of these other stories, chaos is not to be feared. Chaos is not to be filleted. Chaos is not to be something that will conquer us, even though the deep waters in the Jewish mindset were always imminent in their potential destruction. But in Genesis 1, catch that because we're going to come back to it. In Genesis 1, God says, not today. My breath, my spirit will keep you in check. Later on in the story, God also creates sea monsters. The Hebrew word is the tanin. And God is putting them in their place. The things that caused all of these ancient people to be afraid, God says, you're my playthings. And you go where I say you go, and you don't go one foot further. I have bound you to this place. I am in control over you. Chaos has no reign here. I am in control. And beyond this, God invests us, his creation, with purpose by creating us in the image and likeness of God. This story, friends, is freaking incredible. When you put it in its context against these other ancient Near Eastern stories, what the, what the God of the Bible is communicating is something completely radical, but he's doing it in a way that the people will understand. And as the, the Israelites are in bondage and in exile, hearing these old Babylonian stories, they've got their own stories. And it's as if they're saying, Babylon, your stories, they're weak. 
Let me tell you about the God of power and the God of beauty and the God of artistry and the God who says something true about me. Babylon, your, your stories, they, they don't, what are they? Some angry guy killing another angry God and making the sky out of her half of her body. That's got no play here, Babylon. And I'm gonna submit this one to you. For most of the church, the way that we approach this story, it's weak. We think that it's demonstrating a God who has power to call things into existence out of nothing. Yeah, okay, good. But when you put it in its context and you see what God is actually communicating to his people, it is so much more than just this spontaneous creation. When we reduce the seven days of Genesis into a literal historical happening, we miss the beauty. We miss the symbology. We miss the deeply rooted theology of what God is communicating to these people at this time in their specific moment. And for many of us, we have been content here. And we have been content to say, science, you stay over there. I know what I think, and it's right here in this text, and don't talk to me about anything. That conversation is separate from what's Genesis saying in its context to its people in this moment? What's it communicating about a God who creates alone, a God who creates in peace, a God who says to chaos, you stay here, you've got nothing on me, a God who says the sea monsters out there, they've got no play. And even if you are one who reads this story literally, you have to begin to say, what do you do with that big dome in the sky? And what do you do with the waters above and the waters below? And what do you do with the floodgates as they're opening? You've got all these reasons to see there's something more going on in this story and the things that it's communicating are beautiful and powerful. So we come to John chapter six. And as we approach this story, we begin to see what Jesus is up to in this moment. And this story, we've read it three times already. We have some of the background already. We've seen the Exodus. and We've seen how the author of John is trying to get us to say, hey, this is about a new Moses. Hey, this is about a new Exodus. We've also seen how when Jesus approaches the boat and he says, it is I. In the Greek, that is ego eimi, which goes back to the Old Testament text where God reveals himself climactically to Moses saying, when they ask you who I am, you tell them, I am. You tell them, ego eimi in the Greek. So when Jesus shows up in the midst of the waters and says, I am, he's making a direct connection with himself to God. And in this story, we're also seeing another layer to what Jesus is doing in this moment and what John is communicating to his audience. N.T. Wright says, the ancient Israelites, they weren't keen on the sea. Very British. Think about that in your best British accent. Susie's got a lot of accents. You should talk to her after the service. They're, they're very spot on. The Israelites were not keen on the sea. In some of their ancient stories, the sea was associated with chaos, with evil, with untamable forces within the natural or the spiritual world. This is what Genesis 1 is all about. The deep has no chance here because the Spirit of God is hovering over it saying, you can't go anywhere that I don't allow you to go. And all of this is in John's mind as he is penning these words and retelling the story. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and they set off across the lake for Capernaum. 
By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. Remember, Jesus has, has detached. He has gone off to the mountain to be alone and his disciples have been sent off in this lake that is um, 12 miles or so long and seven miles or so at its, at its widest point. They're not getting very far because a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. And remember, maybe, N.T. Wright, maybe, the ancient Israelites were not keen on the water and he goes on to say that even the most seasoned fishermen in this moment would have been fearful for their very lives. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they're not getting very far at all. They see Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. They were frightened, but he says to them, it is I, don't be afraid. They see Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And there's, there's a tie back to Genesis 1. There's a tie back to God's creative activities, which throughout the New Testament, they link Jesus to these creative activities. There's a link back to the Spirit of God hovering over the great mythical to home, the deep, the waters that, that symbolize chaos and threat and imminent danger. And in Genesis 1, the Spirit just floats over and says, you can't go where I don't allow you to go. And here in this text, we have Jesus calmly walking on the stormy waters up to his friends in the boat that are losing their minds, thinking, what are we going to do? We're all going to die. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Chaos cannot reign where I am. You have nothing to fear, friends, because whatever this, this deep darkness is, the thing that is causing you so much pain and frustration and fear, Jesus symbolizes mastery and control over, it's no threat here. I'm out for a leisurely walk on the water of imminent danger, but it won't go where I don't allow it to go. In this story, and this is why I was so jazzed on this. There's so many layers of meaning to what is going on, whether it's Jesus directly linking himself with God the Father, I am, whether it's Jesus becoming the new Moses that's leading people into new freedom and new life and new hope, just walking on the waters like the split sea in the Exodus, just walking on dry ground saying, we are going somewhere and I am taking you there, which is right after this passage, after he gets into the boat, the boat somehow teletransports from the three or four miles in to the other side. And Jesus says, I'm taking you there. It's as if the seas are split open and the exodus is happening or here in this passage where the creator God is saying in Genesis 1, chaos does not reign. And in John chapter 6, this very subtle tie to this ancient story, Jesus is implying, whispering, if you will, to the audience, I'm still creating, I'm still in control. You have nothing to fear here. I don't know what it is that you guys are bringing with you into this space. I don't know what your week or your weeks have looked like leading up to this moment. But if we have to circle back to this again and hear it in light of all this other stuff, 
You can picture yourself on the boat in the sea and the waves are stormy and rocking and you feel as though you have no idea what is happening next. But when you find yourself there, allow yourself to go one step farther where the king of the universe, who is in relationship with us, who has pledged himself to us, who has invited us to follow him, to be about what he is about, to do the work that he is calling us to do in the midst of your uncertainty, in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of your stormy seas, may you go one step farther to see that Jesus saying to you, chaos will not take over here. You have nothing to be afraid of. My hope tonight is that in light of these stories and the beautiful depth that they offer, we can take that and it not just be something that's crocheted on a pillow, but it can be something that is actually stitched into our very being, knowing that Jesus is who he says he is and that Jesus says to us, you, like my disciples in the boat that were so afraid, you too have nothing to fear, trust. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.